passage will be an expansion and application uh, of what it means for Christ to be raised for us and for us both to be uh, buried with him and raised again to new life. Colossians chapter 2. If you were with us for Christmas, you will perhaps notice, you, you won't notice, I only notice because I looked back, uh, that there is an unintentional theme. We were in Colossians chapter 1 uh, around Christmas time. Uh, they're looking at what it means for the fullness of deity to dwell bodily in Christ. And that same phrasing is going to show up again today in Colossians chapter 2. And so there is a connection between the one who came in the flesh and the one who offered his flesh for the life of his people. Today, Colossians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 8 through 15. Before we read this text, let's go to the Lord together and seek his blessing through prayer. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, our God, we thank you that you are the one uh, who does all things perfectly. You've called us here today. Uh, you have given us your perfect word. Uh, Lord, my words will not be perfect, but yours are. And so we pray that you would help us to hear you. As we read this word and as we study it together today, you would help us to know more of our Savior. You would cause us to be confirmed and the faith that you work in us, in him. Help us, Lord, to know you and to love you and to be your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now God's word as we find it in Colossians chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Thus far the reading, God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it uh, together today. Well, if you, uh, if you have children of your own, uh, you probably already know their special skill. Uh, your children have the special ability uh, to reveal to you that you are exactly the person that you like to pretend you are not. That's what kids do for us. And so it happened uh, around the dinner table one evening that one of my sons, who will remain nameless for his protection, one of my sons 
uh, decided to attempt to summarize my life philosophy in a single sentence. You know, Dad always says, there's always room for improvement. And when he said it, uh, I was cut to the quick. But we all laughed because we, we knew it was pretty accurate, actually. It, uh, that's how I approach most things. There is no house project so simple that I can't find a way to make it last a little longer. There's no family outing so fun that I can't wish it were a little bit better. And if my wife asks me to stir the dinner, she knows that I'm going to put a pinch of something in there. She just expects it because there's always room for improvement. Now, before you go to psychoanalyzing your pastor... Uh, you should know that I'm ahead of you. I, I am already there. I've already found ways to rationalize my neuroticism. I have decided that I am not a perfectionist. I'm glad some of you are enjoying this. I've decided that I am not hypercritical. I am discerning. That's what I'm choosing to call myself. I am a connoisseur, if you will. I've decided that I am not insufferable and demanding. I am merely dedicated to the pursuit of excellence in all things. And isn't that a wonderful thing to be? That is the all-American spirit. That is the ingenuity that gave the world the all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> Do you like chicken wings? You will love Chicken wings with roast beef and then with crab legs and with three desserts, there's always room for improvement. But then there comes a point when there's not. There comes a point when you only receive ever-diminishing returns for everything that you put in above a certain point. The point at which every new addition is really a subtraction. The the perfection after which each additional brushstroke only makes the image more obscure. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul is telling the church, you need to know when enough is enough. Spiritually speaking, you need to know that in Christ Jesus, we have a salvation that cannot be improved upon. Not by our human traditions, not by our spiritual experiences, not by any addition whatsoever in the finished work of our resurrected Savior, all God's people have enough. Jesus is enough. That's the point of Colossians chapter 2, the verses that we read today. Jesus is enough. Now, as we walk through, Paul is explaining to believers today what it is that we have when we have Jesus. He begins by telling us that in Christ Jesus, first of all, we have freedom in his fullness. In Christ Jesus, we have freedom in his fullness. He opens his argument with a warning, you notice. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. It's always hard to jump into one of Paul's letters right in the middle and, and try to get up to speed. Uh, and we can't cover all of the background, but you should know that this is one of the letters that Paul wrote to a church that he had never met. 
The believers in Colossae were a a small church, a a church uh, in the midst of a few other regional churches there that were, in a sense, all by themselves. The the people there were converted when a man from Colossae uh, named Epaphras came into contact with Paul, and he came into contact with the gospel, and he believed it, and he carried it back to his hometown. And Paul has never been there. He's never met the people in Colossae, but he's writing this letter for two purposes. He's writing this letter, first of all, to encourage them in their walk with the Lord. And he's writing to them, second of all, to guard them against a particularly dangerous set of ideas that was taking hold at the time. That set of ideas, scholars like to call the Colossian heresy. That's an important sounding title. It, It makes it seem like something unique was happening in Colossae, but it's really not all that unique. What was happening there was the same thing that shows up in any pluralistic society. Anytime people try to take a a, a pinch of this religion over here and a dash of that religion over there and add it together into something else in the hopes of making everything just a little bit better. Nearly 15 years ago now, uh, Newsweek published this tiny, powerful article called We Are All Hindus Now. The basic point was to say that now a majority of Americans have embraced the very Hindu idea that there are many paths that lead to God. In fact, all of them are true and can be true all at the same time. Stephen Prothero calls this the divine Delhi cafeteria religion. He says it's in this religion that you're not picking from different religions because they're all the same. He says, in this version, it's not about orthodoxy, it's about whatever works. So if going to yoga works, great. And if going to Catholic Mass works, great. And if going to Catholic Mass plus the yoga plus the Buddhist retreat works, then great too. That was the approach. It seems to be what was happening, what was behind this so-called Colossian heresy. In Paul's day, with the preaching of the gospel, the Jewish Messiah was being introduced into a world awash in Greco-Roman paganism. Judaism, you're probably aware, was a religion of regulations. You had the Torah with all of its 613 rules and laws, and they ought to be kept by the letter. And, And then there were the extra traditions of all of the rabbis, and those varied depending on which flavor of Judaism you happened to be into. On the other hand, paganism was a religion of mystery. It was a religion of magic. It it viewed the world as as filled with these unseen spiritual forces, but it told you that those spiritual forces could be manipulated or they could be coerced. If only you knew the right secret knowledge, if only you followed the right esoteric religious practices. And in Colossae, there were intelligent-sounding teachers, and they were taking a bit of Jewish tradition, and they were taking a little bit of pagan spiritualism, and they were trying to combine it with the message of Jesus. And Paul says, don't be taken in. Don't be carried away. Actually, the language that he uses, he says, see to it that no one takes you as their plunder. Through this vain philosophy, these high-sounding ideas, the language is that of of pillaging. It's it's the spoils of war. Taking away what did belong to someone else to make it your own. See to it that no one takes you captive. The idea is that by submitting to this kind of teaching, Paul is telling them, you become enslaved to it. 
By trying to add anything to Jesus other than Jesus, you actually just add in bondage. You heap up captivity on top of the freedom that you ought to have in Jesus Christ. And it's the same way that people still try to add to the gospel today. Nothing has changed in two millennia. We add in our our human regulations on on one side, or we we add in our spiritual regulations on the other side, and it doesn't always look like out-and-out paganism. Often it masquerades as obedience. We call it faithfulness. We call it attaining a higher life, a a triumphant life, a sort of second level of better Christianity than the basic one that everybody else has. You've seen it. Maybe you grew up in it. There are the churches that say, Jesus is good. By the way, all the women have to wear floor-length skirts, and all the men have to be clean-shaven. There are the churches that say, Jesus is good, but you're really not doing it right until you're speaking in tongues. You're really not experiencing the higher life until you've received a word of prophecy. There are the churches that say, you know, Jesus is good, but you also need to have your saints. You also need your statues, and you need your beads, and you need your symbols, and you need your prayer book. Jesus is good, but you also need to add in your own good works to fill the gap, because you know there's always room for improvement. Human regulations and spiritual experiences. Take a look down in your Bibles at the verses just after our passage. Paul comes back to both of these things that he says we should not add in. Verse 16, he says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. Do you hear him? Let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one disqualify you. See to it that nobody takes you captive. He's telling you, do not be enslaved by trying to add anything extra to the freedom that you should have in Jesus Christ. Why? Verse 9. Because in Christ Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. There is nothing we can tack on to the salvation God gives us in Jesus. In Jesus, we already encounter the fullness above which no further filling is possible. In him, there is sufficiency beyond which each additional thing that we tack on only results in ever-diminishing return. Now here we're forced to go back and look at chapter 1 because Paul has already defined his terms. What does it mean for all the fullness of deity to dwell bodily in Jesus? Chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says, he, that is Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What does it mean for the fullness of deity to dwell bodily in Christ. It means that in him is totality. The totality. The fullness of fullness. Sufficiency itself that could only come from the self-existent creator of the universe. It means that Jesus is not some local deity with limited resources to give to his people. It means that the kingdom of Christ and his salvation does not peter along with a shoestring budget trying to meet their objectives day after day. It means that in Christ we encounter the infinite Lord whose plan for redemption does not depend on your tiny earthbound contributions, your good works, or your new experiences, or your overly restrictive traditions and regulations. In fact, it means that in Christ Jesus, we encounter the Lord who will not be enslaved. The God who cannot be held captive to anything else we could tack on in an attempt to detract from the glory of His all-sufficient goodness. In Him is fullness. And from him is salvation. And nothing you can add in any way will ever result in greater freedom than what we find through faith in him alone. And so in him we have fullness. We have freedom in him. Jesus is enough. We also in the Lord Jesus have life by his spirit. It's our second point. In Christ, we have life by his spirit. Verse 11. In him, in Christ Jesus, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, admittedly, in the next few verses, there are quite a few things here that get pretty deep pretty quickly. It might be good for for an in-depth Bible study, for a Sunday school lesson. Today, we're just going to stick with the main point, the big idea here that Paul has in verses uh, 11 to 13-ish. And the big point here is that when we are in Christ Jesus, we experience new spiritual life brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit. We receive new life when we are engrafted into Christ. If you're familiar with the language of the Old Testament, you probably recognize that immediately when Paul says that you were circumcised, the circumcision made without hands. When God made his his covenant promise uh, to Abraham to be a God to him and to be a God to his children after him, he gave him a covenant sign. He gave him an outward bodily symbol of an inward relationship with the Lord Yahweh. In Abraham's day, the symbol that God gave him was circumcision. It was a cutting away of of one part of the body, and it was meant to mark out all the men of Israel as separated, sanctified, set apart for God's special use from among all the other peoples 
of the earth. And so the Lord told Abraham to receive the sign of circumcision. He told him to apply the sign of circumcision. Then throughout their generations, it would be a reminder of God's promises. So as you read uh, through the scriptures, all throughout the Bible, the language of circumcision communicates the blessing of life with God. It shows us what it looks like, one picture of what it means to have fellowship and, and communion with the Lord, to be set apart as his own people. But alongside that language in the Old Testament that speaks about being circumcised in the body, God also calls his people to be circumcised in their hearts. Not the physical heart, you understand, the, the, the spiritual heart, the metaphorical heart, if you want to call it that, what, uh, what poets and, and, uh, and theologians and, and everybody really has always taken to mean the inner core of who you are. The seat of your affections, the things that you love, the way that you think, the way that you approach the world. The Lord tells his people to be circumcised in their hearts, to be changed in their inward person. He calls them to be renewed, to be set apart for the Lord from the inside out. Moses was the first person to use that imagery. All the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, Moses said, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And even there in that second phrase, we get an idea for what it means to be circumcised inwardly. Circumcise the foreskin of your hearts, he says, and be no longer stubborn. It means to become pliable to the Lord. It means to be shapeable in his hands, no longer pushing, no longer struggling against what the Lord is up to with his people. Just as, as physical circumcision made the body more sensitive, so also spiritual circumcision makes God's people more responsive to him. It makes our hearts, our, our inward being, spiritually sensitive to what God is doing, his word and his mercy. And so then you begin to think of the other parallels. In scripture, alongside this language of, uh, of being circumcised in the heart, uh, the prophets also spoke of needing a heart transplant, a new heart given by God, an, an inward change to set God's people apart to be his own. Jeremiah said, Jeremiah 24, verse 7, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. And then he concludes, they will return to me with their whole heart. How do you turn to the Lord with your whole heart? Well, it begins when he gives you a new one, a heart to know him a heart to trust him. It begins when you are inwardly changed by his Holy Spirit. Ezekiel promised the same thing. He said a day was coming that the Lord will give his people, he called it, a new heart. He said he will take away the heart of stone, that's the stubborn, inflexible heart, and he will replace it with a heart of flesh, a heart that is pliable. A heart that is sensitive, a new heart given by God that is, that is able to respond to what the Lord is doing among his people. This is the language of new life. You recognize that? This is exactly what Jesus meant when he said, you must be born again by the Spirit. He's talking about the inward work of God, putting to death what is earthly, what is sinful in you, crucifying the old man with its lusts and with its desires, with its sins and with its guilt. And all that is in the background when Paul says, you have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. 
He means that if you're in Jesus, you have been completely remade. You have new life by his spirit. He means that if you are in Christ, your old sinful self has been cut off. It has been excised by Christ's crucifixion. That was his circumcision. Spiritually speaking, when he died in the body of his flesh, when he was cut off from God's people. He was cut off. He was led out of the city. He was discarded like something unclean. And Paul is saying that when he died, you believers, you died with him. When he was cut off from his people, your heart of stone was removed. When his body was laid in the tomb of the rich man, your former sin-twisted way of living and interacting with God was buried with him. When he was raised again on that first resurrection Sunday, he brought new life for all of his people. And he's telling us that as the Spirit draws us to Jesus with cords of love, he unites us to that same powerful working of God that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. He does it by putting his resurrection life in you. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's what he does for you. He gives you new life. He gives you his life. He makes you a newborn believer with a brand new heart of flesh. He supplies you with a heart that is not only able, but also willing and also yearning to love the Lord and to follow the Lord and to return to him with all of your heart, just like Jeremiah said. Now, the reality is that, that in many ways, this is something that we as believers have to accept by faith rather than by sight. We're talking about inward, unseen, spiritual realities here. And it's true, and, and, and there's language here reminding us that God does give us outward signs to visualize what he's doing where we can't see. God gave the Old Testament church the sign of circumcision. He gives the New Testament church the sign of baptism. But the sign that you can see represents a truth that you're not able to. So we have to take it on faith. We have to believe that when we come to Jesus, we become new people. It's also true uh, that when you are born again, when you're inwardly circumcised, when you're spiritually baptized, whatever word, picture you choose to draw from the scriptures to discuss what's happening, when that happens, it's true that there will be signs of new life that show up in you on the outside. Obedience to God's commands is one. A love for his word is another. A desire for fellowship with him and, and fellowship with his people. There will be signs of Christ's life at work in you when you come to him. Most likely, I think the other believers around you will be quicker to see those new signs in your life than you will. But it's also true, even though God gives us outward signs and he works in us so that we can see some of it, it's also true that there are many believers who struggle. And they struggle with the sense that in spiritual things, there's always still so much room for improvement. And so there are spirit-filled believers, twice-born believers, who always seem to limp along in their Christian walk. 
who always, always seem so consumed with the next thing that they think they need to do for the Lord, the next step that they have to take the next obedience that they have to offer, the next experience that they think that they should have had this by now, right? And Paul's message to those believers is why are you looking for all of those additions instead of setting your eyes on Christ? Why are you focused on the wrong things? Why aren't you looking at him? Chapter 3. Of Colossians, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Where should you be looking, Paul's saying? Where your life is. Not to yourself, but to him. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So why are you still sitting there looking at what you think you haven't got? Why are you still so bothered by all the things you think you still haven't done? Why are you still so fixated on all the ways that you wish you could measure up? The salvation we receive in our resurrected Lord is enough. It is sufficient. It is perfect in a way that your additions and my additions and all of our additions never can be. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough for your salvation and he gives you new life. Even though sometimes you struggle to see it, even though sometimes you see other people trusting in Jesus and you go, I wish I could be like that. I wish I could, I could cling to him more thoroughly and, and, and more strongly. I wish he were the desire of my heart like he seems to be the desire of other people's hearts. That's exactly where you need to be, actually. Looking at what you wish you could desire of him, not at what you're lacking in yourself. In him we have new life, and Jesus is enough. So in him we have freedom, and in him we have new life. Praise the Lord. Thirdly, in him we have forgiveness in his victory. Forgiveness in his victory. Notice that in verse 13, as soon as Paul mentions the new life that we experience in Jesus, he immediately moves to deal with the forgiveness that we have through Jesus Christ. Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. New life and forgiveness. This is biblical salvation 101. These are the two blessings that always come together when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jeremiah said the same. Jeremiah said, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And then he adds, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. New life and forgiveness 
I will remember their sins no more, says the Lord. In the, in the, the little Baptist church where I grew up, we often spoke of something that I thought everybody uh, used this terminology. We, we spoke of something that we called the sea of forgetfulness. It was the place, our pastor told us, where God, where God puts all the guilt and, and all the sins that he takes from off of his people. He unburdens them from their guilt. And, and where does he put it? Where does it go? Well, into the, the sea of forgetfulness. This is the way that you stand somewhere down on Cape Cod next to the Atlantic, and you've got a pebble in your hand. You throw that rock as hard as you can, and I don't know, depending how well you throw, it goes 30 feet, 40 feet. You see it splash, maybe it skips, but then it's gone. It sinks. It's covered. You'll never find it ever again. It's not exactly a biblical phrase, the, the sea of forgetfulness. Not literally. It's, it's not uh, pulled from some proof text somewhere. But it's very close, actually. Uh, Micah chapter 7, verse 19 Micah 7, 19 says the Lord will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea, down at the bottom. Not along the shore there where the tide might go out and reveal it, down like by the bottom of the Mariana Trench where all the fish are translucent, where the sunlight never reaches. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. It's a beautiful picture of the way God deals with his people. He removes our iniquity so that they can never be found. And I don't mean at all to diminish that truth in God's word, but I do believe that this statement in Colossians is even better than what Micah envisioned. What do I mean? I mean this. You've seen the pictures. I've seen the pictures. But underwater footage, right? Scanning through the darkness. Nothing there but plankton and, and things floating before the lens. And suddenly, out of the murky abyss comes a railing and a prow. And it's covered in barnacles. The RMS Titanic. And there it is. Just down at the bottom there somewhere, covered in, in barnacles, looking worse somehow, and even more nightmarish because it's been discovered. And it's there as this silent reminder that what is gone is not always forgotten. I know, I, uh, that's not the point of Micah, right? I know that that's not the point of Micah. When we read that the Lord will cast our sins in the depths of the sea, there's not a footnote saying, and by the way, I've got a GPS lock on where I put them in case I ever need to find them again. I know that that's not the point, and you know that that's not the point, but you also know how our hearts work. You also know that even though you know that's not the point, our sinful hearts tend to deceive us. You know how it works. You know how slow we are to believe the promises of God, that what is forgotten is actually forgotten. And you know that if the somber mood suits you, how eager you could be to obsess over all those past sins. To imagine that wherever they've gone, they're just waiting to, to float to the surface at just the wrong time and ruin everything. 
Sinclair Ferguson says there are four flaming darts that the devil loves to throw at God's people to cripple their assurance of salvation. Four fiery darts. He says, fiery dart number one that Satan throws is that God is really against you. Whatever else you may think or think you believe, God is really against you. Fiery dart number two. Satan says, I have accusations that I will present against you because of your sin. Fiery dart number three. You may tell yourself but you're, that you're forgiven. But there's a day of reckoning coming. And you won't escape. Fiery dart number four. Your track record of disobedience proves there's no way you're going to make it to the end. I wonder how often you've heard those lies. I wonder how often you've been tempted to believe them. I wonder what additions to the salvation that we have in Jesus you've been tempted to add in in order to alleviate the tension that comes from believing that maybe some of those things might be true. That's why we need Colossians chapter 2. Because it tells us that our sins are more than just covered. They aren't merely hidden. They aren't merely forgotten. They're not merely swept under the rug. They aren't even cast into the bottom of the ocean waiting to float up when we least expect it. Colossians chapter 2 tells us that our sins are paid for, cleansed, dealt with, reconciled in full, canceled completely. That's the language. Because Christ Jesus is the one who carried them himself. He's the one who poured out his sinless blood to wash away every last debt that you could never pay with all of your additions, with all of humanity's regulations and experiences. You who were dead, God made you alive. Why? How? Well, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That word there, canceling, it's the very same word that shows up in Revelation chapter 7, where we read that God himself will wipe away, there's the word, blot out, completely remove, God himself will wipe away every tear from the eyes who enter into his kingdom. He will make them as though they never existed. He gives a fresh start. Complete removal. That's what the Lord does with our sins when we repent and turn to Jesus the Savior. He wipes the record clean. Through the death and the resurrection of the Son of God, He pays our debt and He sets us free. And it means that the next time Satan comes whispering his lies in your ears, telling you about your smoldering sin and his terrible accusations, you can tell him you don't need what he's selling. In Jesus, you already have enough. In Him, we have freedom in His fullness. In Him we have life by His Spirit. In Him we have forgiveness by His victory. And if you belong to Christ by faith, you already have all that you need. Because Jesus is enough. And if you don't belong to Him already, why not today?
Why not today? Let's pray together. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for this, your word. Praise you for our Savior, really came and and died and, and bore our sins upon Calvary. That he might bury them in the tomb and raise us with him to new life. Oh, thank you for the gift and the promise of life in Jesus. I pray that we might all experience that and know the fullness that comes from knowing him. Oh, Lord, forgive us for all the ways that we so often try to add. We try to improve. We try to do better. Help us, Father, to trust him. To know that in him we have all the salvation we could ever need for our souls and for eternity. Help us, Lord, to trust him. We pray in Jesus' name.